Good morning. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 20 through 25. And the word of the Lord reads this way. And it was not without an oath, for those who who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as believers from different states. Father, as your church, a great picture of even what we'll be looking at today. Father, we thank you for your word and how it reveals all truth to us. Pray today that as we work through this together, Father, you will call us to know truth. Father, in truth we trust. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The title for today's sermon is Our Surety to the Uttermost. Our Surety to the Uttermost. One of the things I like about traveling is getting into a different space. This past week we were on our elder retreat and you get out of your normal rhythms. It's good for rest, it's good for study, it's good for all of those things. Uh, But as a designer, I enjoy looking at just different cities. It's architecture, but particularly I like looking at signs. Uh, Not just because we make one, but look at signs. And you see just the the design that people come up with, uh, what they're trying to communicate. And it's really interesting because sometimes when you look at signs, you know exactly what that place is all about, right? Charlie's Burgers and Fries. That place is most likely about burgers and fries. There's a good chance that if it looks pubbish, it might have pizza and chicken tenders. But they have burgers and fries, right? Other places that you go to uh, might not be as on the nose. You go to the green here and you have the pub. You have to kind of inform maybe what belongs in a pub, but I think you can get there. There are other places that you go, and these are my favorite, that just say something as simple as onyx. (laughs) O-N-Y-X, onyx. These places are mysteries, and I enjoy them because it could be anything from a nightclub, right, to granite countertops. Who knows, right? This is the mystery, and it's exciting. Um, Those things, you don't know what you're going to get when you walk in. There's a good chance that if the windows are tinted, that helps. But you have no idea what is there. Ideally, when someone pulls up or drives past our place and they see Christ the Lord Church, you have some semblance, some idea of what you might find within. Signs offer something, or at least they're supposed to. And they answer questions. If I really want a burger, I'm probably going to go to Charlie's Burger and Fries. I'm probably not going to take the gamble on Onyx. If I want to know how to get God, if I want to know how to get help, if I want to know how to be rescued, some people do go to the pub. They know what they'll find there. But people should drive by a sign like ours and know what they will find. How do we get to God? How do I know this Christ, this Lord? How do I draw near to him? What is it to know the divine? It's this question that we all have. It's interesting because in February of this year in Abu Dhabi, they opened a complex known as the Abrahamic Family House. The Abrahamic Family House. It's three separate houses of worship all oriented in a specific direction that's respectable to their individual faiths. And they're all equal cubes, all 30 by 30 by 30 meter cubes. A mosque, 
a church, and a synagogue, all oriented together. The chief architect of the program said this. He says, I believe that architecture should work to enshrine the kind of world that we want to live in, a world of acceptance, openness, and constant advancement. As an architect, I want to create a building that starts to rise above the notion of hierarchical difference and enhances the richness of human life. So our hope is that through these buildings that celebrate three distinct religions, people of all faiths and from across society can learn and engage in a mission of peaceful coexistence for generations to come. One would assume that when you see Abrahamic family house that they offer family. They offer Abraham's promise. But when you see these three distinct houses of worship, what I think you see when you walk into those doors is a fundamental denial of reality. And it still does not answer the question, how do I draw near to God? How do I get there? Which building do I go into? And so we have, I think, for us, the answer to our question today. Picking up with the last verse of last week, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, the writer says this, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This other address that Pastor Matt gave us, this other address, this other place, this other hope, this better hope is introduced, and it's through this better hope that we draw near to God. The first thing I want you to see today is to trust your surety. Trust your surety. If you don't like the older English words, you can just write guarantee or guarantor. But I like this word, trust your surety. Our text begins by saying in verse 19, we draw near to God in this better hope. And it goes on to clarify in our our text today, this is not without an oath. This better hope doesn't come without an oath. This isn't the first oath that we've even seen in Hebrews. We saw it in chapter 6, verses 17 through 18. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, these things would take place. It's an oath of God to look around, as we talked about before, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the greatest thing of all? Me. I swear by me. I am the greatest. And so for us, when we look at this oath, I I hope the question is, why is he making another oath? Why is he still laying into this oath, specifically of this picture of Melchizedek and the high priest? And for us, as it was before, the whole picture is this. I don't want to overcomplicate today. There's a blueprint we're looking at, but as we talked about in cold pizza, it's still just a house, okay? We're not going to overcomplicate these things. When Jesus, or when God, specifically the Father, makes an oath about Jesus, he's saying that there's nothing that could be more definite. Nothing could be more definite. We know that all he has to do is speak and things happen. That's how creation came about. And so he speaks, and it's effectual. He speaks, and things happen. He speaks, and it stands. He speaks, and he guarantees it with an oath. An oath comes along with it. And it serves two purposes, but let's talk about just this first one, of it being definite. He is declaring, this oath of God is this open declaration of his eternal purpose and his unchanging decree. It's eternal, and it's unchanging. It will not change. Spurgeon says this, and speaking of the oath of God, I tremble when I speak of the oath of God, for God's lifting his hand to heaven and swearing by himself, because he can swear by no greater, is something so solemn that one scarcely dares to think of it. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. The Christian soul is full of awe at the bare thought of God in his most fatherly and ordinary acts. In regular life, when we think about God, we're full of awe as it is. But how shall we think of the Lord girded with solemnity, resolute in purpose, stern in truth, as lifting his hand and taking an oath? It's like the picture of a father in flannel enjoying his kids, and we're like, that is is awesome, his fatherly love that he has, versus dad when he shows up in the three-piece suit, and he's ready for business, and solemn, he's girded and ready to go. It's just a different level. Surely, this is an innermost sanctuary of mystery, the Holy of Holies, 
This oath was for the honor of his dear son as he assumed the sacred priesthood on behalf of the sons of men. The glory of his character, the dignity of his work, the certainty of its accomplishment, the supreme excellence of his motive in entering upon it, all lift up the priesthood of Christ out of the category of human priesthoods, and therefore the Eternal Father signalizes it by a special mark of distinction and makes himself an oath that his only begotten Son is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His word alone should stand. So how much greater, how much more definite, if it can even be, is it when God makes an oath? And so it's not just for the fact that it is a declaration for all time and that it will not change. This is the plan. There will be no other. It also has to do with, as we've seen, the covenant, as we're getting ready to really launch into over the next couple of chapters. Because he goes on to say that the former priests were made without an oath. As Pastor Matt talked about last week, there, if you are in Levi, you're a priest, right? It's not like showing up at Hogwarts and having to put on the sorting hat, and the Gryffindor, right? Judah, Benjamin, uh, Levi, right? When you're part of the tribe of Levi, you're a priest. There's no other school. There's no other tribe that you're a part of. It's that. Those priests, without an oath, simply by merit of showing up and part of of Levi are priests. There's no oath for them. Now, Jesus, if you don't know, was not from the tribe of Levi, right? So how does he then become a priest? None of the other tribes became priests, just him. So how does he become one? Because this one was made a priest by an oath. By the one who said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest. And not just a priest, a priest forever. So there's three quick things I want you to see here in this, this oath and this priest-making of Jesus. First, Melchizedek was the only priest of his class or his order. All of the other ones were Aaronic, right? They're from Aaron and the tribe of Levi. And so Melchizedek was the only priest of his class, his order. And it points then to this solitariness, this, this singularity-ness of Christ's priesthood. He shares it with no one else. There were priests of Levi. But for us in Hebrews, we see that Jesus is priest, the priest. He stands alone. Second, Melchizedek had no predecessor, and therefore his right to office depends not on fleshly descent. This is a foreshadowing for us, the fact that Christ's priesthood was quite distinct from the Aaronic priesthood. Melchizedek had no predecessor. Any priest that showed up in the tribe of Levi would have Aaron as their predecessor, and it followed by fleshly descent. But there was, Mel there was no one, there was Melchizedek, there was no one, and there was Jesus forever. That's it. Third, Melchizedek had no successor. Even in saying there was no one, there was Melchizedek, there was no one, there was Jesus, is even to frame it wrong. There was no one, there was Melchizedek, there was no one. And above that whole timeline was Jesus. He is the antitype. When we talk about type and antitype, we have these pictures in the Old Testament particularly of what a type is. So we see that David was a type of Christ. We see that um, Noah and the ark was a type of salvation event. We see that the Red Sea is a type of salvation event. It's an example. It shows forward what is going to happen and then we have the anti-type, which sounds like an anti-hero or antagonist, as if it's bad, or most people would say anti-Christ. That would be the bad one, right? Well, an anti-type is the actual impression that is making the impression. It's the type that puts the print on. You have type on a page, you have the anti-type, the thing that makes it. And so you have anti-type, Jesus Christ, high priest, mediator of the covenant, over all time. And you have no one. You have Melchizedek, the type, that gets punched, and then no one. He sits over top of it all. And Christ's priesthood then is final and eternal. I think it's important that we stress the fact that it's not said that Christ is priest of the order of Melchizedek. Had he been so, then the resemblance between them would have been destroyed in a very specific particular point. Christ does not succeed Melchizedek. He is of the order of. There's a difference. He is the 
anti-type. He makes the impression. So, Jesus has to be made a priest because he's not of Levi, but he's also of a different order entirely. So he's not made with an oath, one of Levi's, but of his own after the order of Melchizedek. And we see this then, this, this, this first point that he wants to impress on us then. Because you ask, why is the oath important? It's important because of this. This oath, because of this oath, it makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You say this, this oath, it's just that God really means it. No, it's a lot more than he just really means it. The instituting of Christ as high priest in this fashion is what makes the guarantor of a better covenant Jesus, period. In the Greek, Jesus comes last in the sentence. It's the point of import. Holds it most high. The guarantor of the covenant is Jesus. And it could not be so without the oath of God. Now, it's interesting because it kind of goes two ways in this sentence. You see this a lot in Hebrews in general. It can be taken two ways, and it usually means both. Because of this oath, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. We could first take it to mean this. His being made priest by an oath qualifies him to be the surety, the guarantor of the better covenant. What do I mean by that? I'm saying that it proves the dignity of the priesthood of Christ because of the value of the new covenant. His being made priest, the fact that his oath makes him qualified, shows this guarantor aspect of this better covenant. But it could also be taken the flip the, on the other way. The covenant that he's a surety for is better because he was made priest by an oath. It proves the dignity of the new covenant because of the value of the priest made by God's oath. What do I mean by all this? Let's take your favorite NFL team. The Bengals or whatever. <laughs> Whoever it might be. Take your favorite team. How good do you have to be to be on the team? Really good. It's pro football right? So if I get to be on that team, then that team is showing how good I am. The new covenant is showing how good Jesus is. But on the flip side, you take your favorite player, right? You take Rodgers, you take Brady, whoever it is, and you say, hmm, now the team is really good because of the one man. Now we see that the new covenant is of high value because Jesus is its priest. It works both ways. Much to my chagrin, that would mean that the Patriots were great. And I hate that fact. But the Patriots were good because of the dude, and the dude was good because of the Patriots. Same thing with our covenant here. This oath makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, most important thing today, the guarantor. Surety, part of my sermon, my title, right? What is a guarantor? What is a surety, and why do we need this? Why does this oath matter so much in making Jesus the guarantor? Let's look at what a guarantor does first before we see why we need it. We have this really, really, really good picture of this in the scriptures in Genesis 43 and 44. You know the story of Joseph. You know that there's famine, and his family has to go to Egypt and sit under him and plead for him to give them food. He says, I will if you bring back your younger brother, Benjamin. So Judah goes back to his father and says this, send the boy with me, send Benjamin with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. Israel was afraid of losing his son. He's already lost his favorite one. He's afraid of losing Benjamin as well. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So they go. He says, okay, take him with you. Go get the food. And they get in front of Joseph, and Joseph has them take a cup, right, and put it in Benjamin's bag. And then accuses him of stealing. And he's ready to make him his servant and keep him. And we see this fulfillment then of this pledge of safety from Judah. Chapter 44, verse 32. 
It says, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant, please let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to you. And let the boy go back with his brothers. Or how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? See, Judah step up, whereas he did not originally with Joseph, right? Now he steps up. And he says, I am his safety. I'm his surety. I'm his guarantor. I can't, I can't let you keep him. You have to take me. Keep me. It's fine. I will pay the debt. I will take his place. This is, I think it's the best picture that we have in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's not unusual either. In fact, in Philemon, verses 18 and 19, you see this from Paul to Onesimus. Uh, concerning Onesimus, rather. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then he does this little nice Pauline flex. He says, to say nothing of you owing me, even your own self. You know, there's that. But if he owes you anything, I'll cover it. I'll take it. I'll be his surety. Let me take care of that. See, this picture of a surety or guarantor is not outrageous. It happens all over the place. You usually have to do this in ways that you may not realize when you take a loan on your house. There's something required to protect investment, to protect relationship, to protect contract. And so in our case, when we deal with this covenant, we look at the old covenant, we see that Moses was the typical type mediator, right? Moses is the one who said, Lord, please restrain your anger. Remember your promise. And the Lord relents. He mediates for them. He steps into the breach, as the New Testament tells us. But Aaron was the typical surety. He was the type of this surety, this guarantor. Aaron was the one who offered solemn sacrifices in the name and on behalf of the people, making atonement for them according to the terms of the covenant. So Aaron was filling in this typical surety as the high priest. And now we find that we have another high priest. It is our guarantor. Surety. I think it's important when you think about this picture of surety in relationship to God. Why do we need one? Why do we need one in the first place? That's because we, like Onesimus, owe something. And in fact, owe something that we cannot pay. Inside this covenant that we have with the Lord, well, we have terms that we are supposed to keep, and we cannot. So Jesus now stands in as a mediator and surety for us. Because what does God want from us? What would he prefer? What was the original design that we even saw in the garden? Hosea chapter 6, verses 6 to 7 says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly, faithlessly with me. The type of relationship that God wants with his creation and with his elect is one that is of steadfast love, that is of knowledge of him. But because of breach of the covenant, because of faithlessness on our part, we need sacrifice, we need burnt offerings, we need surety. One commentator says this, it is the surety by the divine oath, which gives stability to the covenant. God enters into a covenant with the first Adam, but it had no surety. And therefore, though our first parent had all the tremendous advantages of a sinless nature, filled with holy inclinations, free from all evil imaginations, desires, and habits, he still broke the covenant and forfeited all the benefits. God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai, in Exodus 19 and 24, and appointed the high priest then to act as the typical surety of it. But as we've seen, that covenant, that surety made nothing perfect. That we talked about last week. It made nothing perfect. It couldn't. The purpose of that covenant was to demonstrate the need of another and a better one. 
In contradistinction from these, God has made with his elect in Christ a covenant ordered in all things and sure. Because as Psalm 89 19 says, for he laid help upon one that is mighty. He laid help on one that is mighty. He laid help on a Judah who could stand in. He laid help on a Paul who could stand in. He laid help on a Jesus who could stand in. He is mighty and able. So, he's our guarantor. That's why we need one. But of what? The guarantor of what? Just that he can pay for us? That's great. But to what end? What are we achieving by this? A better covenant. He is, a co- he is the guarantor of a better covenant. And so we now see then this pure picture that never more will there be any need of another priest or any possibility of a return to Levitical priesthood. Why do we know that? You heard it the past couple of weeks. Just last week. When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Hebrews 7.12 When there is a change in the priesthood, moving from Aaronic to Melchizedekian, when there is a change in that priesthood from the line of Aaron to now Jesus, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So, there's no need of any other priest. He's a priest forever, right? And there's no possibility of a return to Levitical priesthood because he's not of the line of Levi. So A.W. Pink says this, the Mosaic covenant was administered by the instrumentality of the Levitical priesthood, but the better covenant by Jesus, the Son of God, that was transitory and changing. This now is permanent and eternal. It is so because those who enjoy its blessings receive an enablement to comply with its terms. There was no enablement to comply with its terms under Levi. To fulfill its conditions, there was no help. It just condemned, as Romans says. And to yield obedience then to God that is required. There was no help for obedience. That's why there was ongoing sacrifices. Every day, morning and night, and every year. For by the ordination of God, our surety merited and procured for them the Holy Spirit. And all the needed supplies of grace to make them new creatures. And empowered to yield obedience to God from a new principle of spiritual life, and that faithfully to the end. You see, there was no enablement to comply. There was no help in fulfilling. There was no yielding in obedience. Not under Levi. It was just time. Temporary yielding of wrath. But by the oath of God, our surety in Christ Jesus of this new and better covenant, merits by his righteous living and procures, goes and gets for us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us all the needed supplies of grace to make us new creatures, to let us empower, be empowered to obedience and to have a spiritual life that is faithful to the end. There was no sacrifice this morning, guys. There won't be one tonight. There won't be one on the Day of Atonement. But it's done. So what's some application that we can do as we kind of close out this, this first point? Two things that he wants. What does he want? Knowledge of God. What can we do? We can trust God's word. The oath should matter. It should be unnecessary, but it, it is necessary in order to institute him in this line. And so it should matter to us because God's word is entirely trustworthy. The point of him saying it won't change is to help us know that he doesn't vacillate. He doesn't change his mind. What he said will stand. We don't have to question if there's another line. We don't have to ask if there's a third line of priesthood. We don't have to ask if we're going to go back one day to the Levitical priesthood. There is no change. He will not change. So in other words, our eternal salvation depends neither on our changeable feelings nor on our wavering experience. It doesn't matter how you feel about things, and it doesn't matter what happens to you or how you experience life. Our eternal salvation does not depend on those things. Our salvation, our confidence, is in the God who will not go back on his word. It is that simple. 
knowledge of God, trust his word. And so, in times of doubt and uncertainty, when feelings waver, when experience is difficult, we're urged by this letter simply to take God at his word. Do you believe me? Take him at his word and recall afresh that although our feelings and circumstances may change, he has sworn on oath that he will not change. His son is our priest forever. This is why it's important for us as a church to have a distinctive such as sufficiency and authority of Scripture. We believe in the authority of Scripture. It is God's word revealed to man that we might know him and his ways, and all things that are necessary for a life of godliness are contained therein. It is sufficient for all things. This should not be something that sets us apart from other churches. Unfortunately, it is. It should be something that sets us apart from the world in such a way that we can trust its authority and we can proclaim its authority in the public square. Do you know his word in such a way that it is actually going to be sufficient for you, that you can put it to use? Do you trust his word? Can you simply take him at his word? Because there is no other greater name that an oath can be made. He asks for knowledge of God. That's what he desires. The second thing that he desires, according to Hosea, is steadfast love. Steadfast love. I hope that you can see, as we talk about this point, that it's going to result in obedience. That true and steadfast love is played out through obedience. Love is a verb, right? It's an action put into practice. Now, for those of you that are playing at home, I hope that you can see our mission statement. (laughs) No love, obey. Right? Trying to make this pretty easy. Steadfast love leads to obedience. As far as the new covenant surpasses the old, as far as it is greater than the old, we are under greater obligation to God. As Luke 12, 48 says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. That just so far as the surety of the better covenant exceeds in dignity and glory, the surety under the old covenant, then we are under higher obligation of rendering to him more complete submission, deeper devotion, fuller obedience. In the same way that the new covenant surpasses the old, in the same way that Jesus surpasses Aaron, our surety, we are to give and render to him more complete submission, deeper devotion, fuller obedience. What are we talking about here? Worship. (laughs) Talking about worship. That's what this is. That's what a life of complete submission is. Of deeper devotion. Of full obedience. It's a life of worship. A.W. Pink says this, O my brethren, what is due unto that blessed one who left heaven's glory and came here to this sin-cursed world to discharge our obligations, pay our debts, suffer and die in our room instead? May his love truly constrain us to gladsome and wholehearted surrender to him, no longer seeking to please ourselves, but living to and for his honor and praise. If we do not, that is certain proof that we are yet in our sins, strangers to the surety of the better covenant. So as we look at the warnings of Hebrews in the past, and you might wonder and question and have concerns or maybe even doubts, do you worship? <laughs> Is this true of you? Do you know your surety? Do you know your guarantor? Put to death those things that you would do to please yourself. Live to his honor and praise. Because of your love for him, obey him. Complete submission, deeper devotion, fuller obedience. So, trust your surety. Next up, trust that he remains. Trust that he remains. Our text goes on to say, for the former priests were many in number. Former priests were many in number. Now, specifically, 
we're talking about the high priests. The high priests only, Aaron and his successors. The Jewish records would inform us that there are no fewer than 83 high priests from Aaron the first to Phineas, who perished with the temple. Thirteen of them lived under the tabernacle prior to Solomon. Eighteen under the first temple that Solomon built before it was destroyed by the Babylonians and into exile. And then the remainder in the second temple until it was destroyed in AD 70. It was a lot of priests. It's a long line. 83. Now, it's particularly long because the high priests could serve until death. We even saw some of how that worked in Joshua when we learned about the cities of refuge and how you could go there until the high priest died. Then you would be paid for and could leave the city without fear of revenge. High priests served for a long, long time. Regular priests in Levi were trained up until 25, actually began their duties at 25 years of age, and were forced into retirement at age 50. High priests could live much longer and serve much longer. There are many in number, but they were prevented from continuing. Not by age, not by turning 50, but by age in another way, by death, it says. I think it's a bit amusing that he blames death, right? And that the regular priests could work until 50, right? But for these other ones, they, again, served their entire lives. And death was always a stopping point. For every one of the 83, they all, well, they died. <laughs> That's how it works. In fact, it was done the first time in a grand display to help show how final this endpoint is for a high priest, the numbers 20, 25 through 29, you see that Aaron is commanded to die in the sight of all the congregation. Verse 25, take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Or and strip Aaron of his garments. Put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Or on the site of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, put them on Eleazar, his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. It's interesting if you have an ESV study Bible, you'll see in that passage a reference in verse 20, 24, to our passage today. That knows what, this is what it's talking about. He died. They all saw it. There was an end to this. They all were prevented from continuing by death. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus alone, there's not 83 of them, there's not a line, just him. You have this summary statement that gathers up all of the previous discussion. Jesus mentioned by name. The last time was several chapters ago in, in 6. Moreover, in this Greek text, he has that prominent point. It is him alone. There is no other name by which man may be saved. There is no hope in the Abrahamic family house. There is no building you can walk into there that will help. There is no unity to be found amongst the three. There is no prophet to be found. We have one high priest by which man may be saved. Whether another path, Muhammad, still looking for a Messiah, looking for enlightenment, or through a restoration of the laws, the Jews would look in here. Calvin says this about trying to go back to the law. He said, Then he who still holds to the shadows of the law, or seeks to restore them, not only obscures the glory of Christ, but also deprives us of an immense benefit. For he puts God at a great distance from us, to approach whom there is liberty granted to us by the gospel. And whoever so, whosoever continues in the law, knowingly and willingly, deprives himself of the privilege of approaching nigh to God. 
I don't have to go to one of those three houses. I can go to the throne room. And if I reinstitute the law, I push God as far away from me as he's ever been. There is no other hope. There is no other way. There is no law even of the Old Testament that will help. So Jesus alone remains forever. Let's talk about forever first. Forever. Because it seems, even consider today, Palm Sunday, those people who saw Jesus ride in were pretty excited, right? That's where the palms came from. Things changed very quickly over the course of that week. But they're excited. Why? Well, it, it seems that people might have been ready to acknowledge his earthly ministry. You're there. You saw it. People are walking. People are coming back from the dead. Falling, you know, coming out of tombs. Could have been all of them, as we've said, if he didn't just name the one. People are seeing. People with leprosy are being restored and made whole. It wouldn't be too hard to trust that earthly ministry. But then he leaves, and his followers keep doing things, and it seems to get bigger, and a lot of these same miracles are still happening. People still coming back from the dead. Kid falls from the tower during a long, dry sermon, right? When it's hot, right? Goes down, lifts him up, comes back to life. But then time goes by. The temple destroyed. Persecution comes. People thrown to lions. You start to say, it seems like their earthly ministry and work of Jesus has kind of settled down a bit. Persecutions intensifying. You see, nobody doubted the earlier manifestation of Christ's saving activity. But could he still save people now? It is for all time. What he has done, he has achieved for us forever. It is a forever ministry. Not just because he said it, but because he is the office of the priest. It's not just that he serves there, but he is it. He is mediator. He is high priest. And then this so helpful word <laughs> remains or continues. My question in the Abrahamic family house is where's Mohammed? Where is he? Does he remain? To the Jews there even, I'd say, where's Messiah? Why isn't he here yet? In fact, maybe more pertinently, where's high priest? How do you still do what you're supposed to do? Where is high priest? Of course, they might ask us the same question. Where's Jesus? Didn't he die as well? Jesus says that he's going to. John 12, 32, 34, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answers him, we've heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. Where did they get that from? Probably the same psalm we're using. <laughs> they did. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. The Messiah remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. How can you say that he's going to die? And Jesus did die. No less truly than Aaron did. He was lifted up in front of all men to see his death, just as Aaron and all of his successors. But the death of Christ was a vastly different thing from the death of the Levitical priest, from the death of Aaron. Because his death did not prevent him abiding a priest as theirs did. First, he died as a priest. They died from being priests. Aaron, when he passed away, no longer a priest. He dies from the office. Jesus died in his office because he is priest. They died out of office. Second, this personal death was no part of their work. When they went and offered sacrifice, they walked right back out. They weren't the sacrifice. Being the personal sacrifice was not on the table for Aaron. But to die was the chief priestly duty in coming upon the Lord Jesus. He was both priest and sacrifice. 
Third, when they fell under the power of death, they could not extricate themselves from it and return to life in the service of the sanctuary. But the Son of God had power to lay down his life and pick it back up again. So far from death putting an end to his priesthood, it didn't even interrupt the exercise of it. He remained priest through his death. Christ died as a priest because he was also the sacrifice for sins. And because of the unchangeableness of his person, his soul and body was still subsisting in the person of the Son of God. He was still Jesus, Son of God, and he remained active in his office without any break. And so Hebrews tells us that he continues, he remains forever. We trust that he remains. He is the only way, and he remains. Finally, trust that he intercedes. Trust he intercedes. As you read your Bible, pay attention to these precious words when they show up. They're so helpful. Consequently, consequently, because of all this, this is what happens. These are the consequences. So helpful, right? Transition words. Consequently, consequently, because of all of what? Because of the oath of his consecrating. Because of the immutability of the Father's purpose. Because of the better covenant. Because of him as surety. Because he continues forever. Because of these things, he is what? Able to save. Consequently, he is able to save. I'd encourage you to remember all the way back to chapter 2. Jeff took us through the sermon, he's able to help. Able to help. He became a merciful and faithful high priest, he told us. That is exactly what he is. But able to help is a slightly different and in a very important way from able to save. Spurgeon says this, so to speak, the sacrificial bull was not actually a sacrifice, but the representation of the sacrifice that was to come. The morning and evening lambs did not take away sin, but they only mirrored the great blood shedding of the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. In very deed and truth, the men of the house of Aaron who attended at the visible altar were not actual priests before the real altar of the Lord. They were only shadows of the true. The real altar is the person of Christ. The real sacrifice is the death of Christ. The real priest is Christ himself. The images of heavenly things were glorious, but the glory of the things themselves dwells in Christ. And we behold that glory full of grace and truth. He is actually able to do something. It's not just a representation. It's not just a forward-looking and hope. It's the actual efficacious thing itself. He is able to what? Save. Save me from what? What evil? What danger? From sin. He is able to save us from sin with all its terrible consequences, its pollution, its guilt, its curse of the law, the captivity of Satan, the wrath to come as wages for it. We see that Jesus saves his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. He saves his people from the curse, Galatians 3.13. He saves his people from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. W. Pink reminds us of this very thing that we often overlook. It was no easy matter to subdue Satan, to fulfill the law, to take away sin, to placate God, to procure pardon, to purchase grace and glory with all that belongs unto God's great salvation. But God laid help upon one that is mighty. Again, Psalm, 7, er, Psalm 89, 19. That's, this was happening this week that we remember. And we remember from Palm Sunday to Easter, Jesus busy about the difficult task, subduing Satan, fulfilling the law, taking away sin, placating God, procuring pardon, purchasing grace and glory, and all that belongs unto God's great salvation. Everything else. He is able to save us 
Save us what? From sin. How much? <laughs> That's an important thing. For the moment? For the sins of today? Because there has to be a sacrifice again tomorrow? No, to the uttermost. To the uttermost. And you see, when we read this, it can mean two different things. It can mean quality, it's, it's full, or duration, like a certain amount of time. Uttermost being the uttermost amount of time, right? If it's quality, then we can take it this way. Christ will not affect part of our salvation and then leave what remains to ourselves or to others. He didn't just start it. He didn't just bring the bull there only for us to have to kill it or add to it or to complete it. He does it to the uttermost. It is a full salvation. That's the quality. When we think duration, it could be this. Whatever hindrances and difficulties lie in the way of the salvation of believers, the Lord Jesus is fully competent, able, by virtue of the exercise of his priestly office, to carry out the work for them unto eternal perfection, until it's done, the uttermost, until it is necessary by time and extent. And of course, it's both. <laughs> it's both. The uttermost. A complete salvation is a never-ending one. A complete salvation is a never-ending one. It's not in part, it's whole. It's not in future need, it's done. A complete salvation is a never-ending one. We think about the surety and asking until when? In full, we have Romans 8, 34 Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, as we'll see in just a minute. He's our surety. So what charge can you bring against him? He's paid it. He's our surety. Who can condemn us? He's paid it. He's freed us. He's taken our place. He died. And more than that, he was raised. And he now is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. But who? <laughs> he's able to save. Because of all this, because of the oath, his immutability, the covenant, because he's the surety, because he continues forever, because of all this, he's able to save to the uttermost in the most complete way. Who? You? Me? Them? The question that we began with today. What am I looking for if I come to this place? What does the sign tell me that I should find here? How to draw near to God? He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. His power knows no limits and his life knows no end. He is able to save his people fully and completely. Nothing's necessary to supplement their salvation. They are not saved by a little believing plus a little doing. He achieves it absolutely by his victorious work. Moreover, he can save them now. He is the support that comes at each moment of trial. You see, the abiding of Christ as priest manifests the continuance of his care for his people. The same love which caused him as priest to lay down his life for them. It remains unchanged. Therefore, each one may with the same confidence go to him with all your concerns as poor and afflicted people went to him while he was here on earth. Again, it is upon the perpetuity of Christ's priesthood that the security of his church rests. Those that would draw near to him. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, his people. And how do they get there? Through him. I've already mentioned that. Through him. To come to God by, through Jesus Christ is the only way. And this is holy worship. What does it look like? How do you come through him? How do you know that you're doing these things? Obedience to his authority. Obedience to his authority. If you're going to come through him, 
then it's by him that you trust. Bowing to his scepter, a practical owning of his lordship. You want him to be your surety? You belong to him. You accept his authority. Otherwise, if there's any other way, if we don't submit to him in obedience, then we are rebels and idolaters, not worshipers. Those people cannot go near to God through him. If you're a rebellious or an idolater, you're not a worshiper. Two, reliance upon his mediation and the Father's acceptance of it. You count on the sufficiency of his sacrifice to atone for our sins and with his intercession to obtain the acceptance of us and our offering. He sacrificed for me and I know that he is putting it in front of the Lord. It is one thing to say that he's sufficient, but if it's not placed in the appropriate place, it's of no value. He is interceding. And three, faith in his person is the foundation. Faith in the oath of God the Father that Jesus both is and fulfills his holy office. He is priest and he does priestly stuff. So unless we are true believers, our worship will not be accepted. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And he makes intercession. This is day by day intercession that we're talking about. You know, this letter has much to say about Christ's redemptive work on the cross in the past and a once and for all sense. But it also emphasizes his present work for his people. His saving mission is complete, right? Calvary, done. All the stuff that I listed earlier that's happening this week, done. So what does he do now? He supports and sustains us through his intercessory ministry. Day by day, hour by hour, Christ prays for us. We should pay special attention to this aspect of Christ's present work because it's what's happening now. <laughs> especially in light of this letter's Jewish background of wanting to return, to leave that and go back to an earthly mediator. One commentator reminds us of the fact that this is not just better and effective intercession than a priest, it's even better than the angels, how we started Hebrews, right? Chapters 1 and 2. The rabbis maintained that intercession on behalf of people was a ministry entrusted to the angels and especially to Michael, the archangel. And here yet again, Christ is portrayed as one who, as priest, exercises an intercessory role far superior to the angels in the Jewish tradition. He intercedes for us meaningfully, for unlike the angels, he has firsthand experience of our trials. We've seen that, right? He was one of us. He knows exactly what we have experienced. So he intercedes for us compassionately because unlike the angels, he knows exactly what we need. They're not just helpful, he is help. He knows. He intercedes for us effectively because also unlike the angels, he has the power to actually meet our need. He knows it, he's experienced it, and he has power to do something about it. We've seen this in the scriptures. During his earthly ministry, Jesus prays for his friends. We know that the Spirit prays for us. The early Christian people rejoiced at the thought that his effective intercessory ministry was not confined to his life on earth. He goes to prepare a place. He goes and sits. He goes and intercedes. This ministry of intercession continues in heaven. So, He's able to make a way. He provides intercession. What do I do with that? How does his current intercession for you change? Well, I guess everything. How does the fact that right now the risen lamb seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, believer? Does it change your life, the next time anxiety boils up from within, you can know that your effectual high priest is fulfilling his office right now. Praying for you. Before you open that private tab on your phone to go look for something 
You should. Does it change life? That he's interceding for you right now. Kids, when your classmates call you names, does it change something that the king of the universe has Jesus interceding for you? Saying, you're mine. Because does it change things when you really wish that you had that toy and that other person didn't? Because you have the king of the universe interceding and praying for you. When your mom asks you to do one more task, even after you already did all your other chores, does it change things? To know that he did all of it for you. Everything that was required. Husbands, when your wife unloads on you in either anger or desperation, does it change things to know that you have a mediator who's interceding for you right now? Right then. When your alarm goes off in the morning and you don't want to face life, you're tired, you have everything to do, you have an effectual high priest who's able to help you draw near to God today. When you pull in the driveway after a tough day of work and everything is still required of you. We know what he did when all of these things happened to him, right? And he calls us to the same. And with power. With power. We have the Holy Spirit. We know what he has done. We love him. He calls us to obey. But should we fail, and we will, he stands a surety and he intercedes before the Father and says, take me as payment. He says, because he always lives to make intercession for them. John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. We are called to the same life and we will have it forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 tells us Christ has not been raised, and we're going to get a whole dose of this next week. Christ has not been raised. Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You are in no better shape than all the tribes of Israel. And another sacrifice is expected tonight. But Christ has been raised. He always lives in this office. He is priest. And what does he say? He always makes intercession for them. For them. Christ is our priest, church. It's for you. It's for me. We may disappoint him and from time to time even fail him. He does not cast us off. God is true to his word and for all time Jesus is priest to those who love and trust him. We are his brothers, and we are his house. We've seen this already in Hebrews, right? Don't forget these pictures. He's called us brother. He's fashioned us into a house. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God is our compassionate father, and Christ is our changeless priest. Trust your surety. Trust your priest. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have shown us this. Father, I, I imagine the peace that does come from seeing the sacrificial bulls, from seeing the sacrificial lambs, from seeing the priests come back out from the Holy of Holies, and knowing that blood has been spilt on my behalf. I can imagine the peace that's there. Father, you meant it for that. Father, the picture we have now in Christ, knowing that blood has been paid and we have now just been covered, that this blood washes us. The blood of animals simply covered to push off your wrath. But Father, this blood washes us clean. And we receive righteousness in its place. What peace there is in that. Father, as we even look at the cup today, as we take communion, this cup washes us. 
This body that was broken is no longer broken. It's made whole. And it stands before the God of the universe, the one true God. And it remains forever. To the uttermost, your son covers us. Father, let us trust that. Let us take you at your word. As we move on, even from the picture of the priest into the picture of the covenant, Father, let us not forget the significance of the one who stands in the breach for us and will do so forever. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.